Would the Stoics have intuitively understood a concept like Roman fragility? Could Epictetus, a former slave, have looked upon his Roman masters clinging to the trappings of an empire and thought, there is a great fragility in your dominance, in your desire for control, and your inability to embrace the void? Pathetic earthlings, hurling your bodies out into the void without the slightest inkling of who or what is out here. Is life just some kind of horrific joke without a punchline that we're all just biding our time until the sweet, sweet release of death? Take her to the moon for me, okay? Welcome, friends, to episode 258 of Embrace the Void, where we're trying to be less litigious, but mostly failing. I am your host, Aaron, and my guest this week is Jonathan Church, a chartered financial analyst, government economist, and author. His recent books include Reinventing Racism, Why White Fragility is the Wrong Way to Think About Racial Inequality, and Virtue in an Age of Identity Politics, a Stoic Approach to Social Justice. From my perspective, his works aim to provide substantive critiques of current approaches to Marxism and social justice from the left, or wokeness, which would be my term, not his, while also criticizing the ways that anti-woke activists have overshot the mark at various points. Jonathan, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. How are you doing? It's nice to finally get you on the show. Yeah, I guess it's just a typical Sunday afternoon for me, uh, except for, you know, the podcast uh, appearance. So all in all, all in all, I'm, you know, really don't have anything to write home about today, I guess, but except that I'm on your podcast, for which I'm yeah, grateful no, great. because we've had some good, I think, uh, fairly substantive interactions on Twitter, at least. I've listened to your podcast enough to think that it's a very thoughtful realm of uh, conversation. And so, you know, I, I felt uh, grateful to actually have the invite. So, yeah, here I am. Yeah, no, absolutely. We've been interacting on Twitter. I think I checked for two years or so now. and Every now and then. Yeah, off and on. But I feel like whenever we interact, even though it is a little bit, uh, and this is my fault as much as anyone, sort of somewhat content, litigious, let's say, at various points, I think you have generally very substantive critiques and analysis. I read not all of, but parts of the two books that I just mentioned, and I want to talk about those a little bit. But before we get into all of that, do you want to let folks know a little bit about, you know, sort of how you self-identify in the like ways that would matter to a culture war discussion and sort of what perspective you're coming from on the various kinds of issues that tend to incite conflict? Yeah. 2016, I started a weekly column for the Good Men Project. That's a very progressive outlet. It was about uh, various things, actually a lot of autobiographical stuff, but also cultural war type issues, social justice. You know, in 2016 is, you know, somewhere around the time where this stuff was starting to kick in and become a big wave of, you know, part of the 
conversation of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, social issues and so on. Anyway, as social justice activism was becoming kind of a big topic of conversation, things like white privilege and, and, you know, stuff like that, eventually, oh, and I also should mention that one of the reasons that I kind of got into this is because I was also into it into the night in the 1990s, you know, sort of political correctness and multiculturalism and all that stuff. And this was kind of like a 2.0 version of that only kind of mm. elevated. So you do in, see them as similar? I mean, to some extent. I mean, obviously, there are their own entities as well. But the common thread through it all is philosophy. I was a philosophy major as an undergrad, Mm -hmm. along with econ. And so, you know, you hear about a lot of philosophers that are invoked to, uh, you know, as sort of background, providing background ideas that sort of motivate so-called critical social justice, wokeism, et cetera. So you got people like Foucault, Derrida, and so on. And those are people that I had studied in college. So I was kind of interested in the way, in the interplay between the philosophy and the sort of the activism. And so I was writing about it. And then somewhere along the line in 2018, I came across, well, I had come across it somewhat before, briefly on occasion, but basically Robin D'Angelo. And it was really just a text exchange with a sibling who's very active in social justice stuff. And it was, it was, you know, I had written an article about social justice and confirmation bias or something. And she basically mm-hmm. came back with, you know, why do you always get so defensive about privilege and so on? And D'Angelo came up and it was as if every kind of remark I made was just an instance of white fragility. And that kind of got me very interested in, in this kind of Kafka trap type of uh, situation I felt my, I found myself in. Started looking into her work, wrote an article, got published in Quillette. A couple months later, I got, wrote another one in Aereo. And then kind of throughout thir- 2019, I was writing article after article about D'Angelo. And so... Um, Basically, for like three, four years, I was writing a lot of articles on social justice uh, activism and eventually with a specific focus on D'Angelo and then kind of spreading it out with a few articles on Kendi, a few articles on philosophy and so on. And I guess just to wrap it up, uh, I pretty much think I could say I started off as very anti-woke. Mm-hmm. Although, again, motivated really by the philosophy and also by the sense of dogmatism coming from what I viewed to be the progressive wing of these wars. And then I would say sometime maybe probably after the 2020 election where mm-hmm. I gradually, but then it picked up scheme, really started to move away from a sort of assertive affiliation with the anti-woke crowd because, I mean – from the the start the, from the the uh, election fraud stuff to the vaccines to, to just so many issues, and then I also thought that they were misrepresenting a lot of things and things like CRT and and whatever. Mm. I just I couldn't I couldn't see myself as sort of anti woke anymore as much as sort of woke skeptic. So I guess I would just identify you know for purposes of brevity as woke skeptic. Mm. I, that's an interesting story and one that I've heard versions of from a couple of listeners, other people who kind of interact in, in these spaces where, you know, there is a kind of genuine buy-in on what we'll, we'll talk about, what I consider some of, some of the more reasonable critiques of wokeness and at the same time, this experience of 
sort of watching that space sort of get subsumed into these various, I guess, what I would call moral panics and conspiracy theories. I'd be curious if you would as well sort of use that kind of terminology. I'm also kind of curious just to hear, you know, I, clearly, I'm not hanging around in spaces like Quillet and Aereo, though I am friends with one of the uh, with the, with the current person who runs it. It's I'd be curious to hear how you feel like you would characterize anti woke spaces versus how you imagine sort of woke individuals to kind of imagine you know think about how they must look. Yeah, I'm inclined to say that like any quote unquote community, you're going to find a lot of intra-community agreements and disagreements, you know, factionalization. And I think that you can mm-hmm. see, and I, and I also want to sort of distinguish between um, the extent, you know, in other words, I want to be careful not to sort of think that Twitter, which is where a lot of this sort of stuff comes out, you know, uh, plays out, is um, a fully accurate representation of, you know, the society, wider society, as a whole. I mean, I think there is, there is a lot of overlap, but anyway, that said, I mean, I can think of um, immediately of the divisions between say like James Lindsay uh, and Claire Lehman. I know Kathy Leung was someone who was early, early on to the sort of anti James Lindsay train, or at least calling him out for being, you know, sort of out there, so to speak. So, I mean, I guess to begin, I would just observe the, um, you know, the, the degree of disagreement within the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in terms of how I view it generally, um, I mean, it's hard to say at this point now because uh, it seems that maybe two or three years ago, at least in my view, and it might just be because of what I was focused on, that it was focused, that it was mainly zooming in on on the racial issues, you know, the CRT and now it feels like it's all about the transgender critical stuff. And so, you know, again, issue dependence uh, depends on what issue you're talking about. Um, but uh, I think to the extent that there is a common view in the so-called anti-woke community um, that wokeism sort of over overemphasizes the in structural, uh, the, 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 the theme of social constructivism, um, mm-hmm. uh, and is over emphasis, emphasize, um, the right where word, um, perhaps we'll just use that word for now, but the extent to which social constructivism is kind of the anchor on which, uh, wokeism, uh, mm-hmm tends to rest. I think that's a common critique uh, that kind of binds together the anti-woke community to a certain extent, at least, and one with which I can identify to a certain extent. Mm. Yeah. And I do think there's a version of this that I would agree with, which is, um, I think in one of your books, I think in the Stoicism book, you sort of talk about 
like a fundamental disagreement between what you'd call critical social justice, which I'm fine with as a term, and sort of your stoic approach to social justice is that the disagreement between sort of starting with the individual versus starting with the institution, right? That I think Mm -hmm. if you look at wokeness or critical social justice, it is a, at its best, I would say a systems level analysis that, that like looks at the larger forces that are preventing social progress rather than locating the problem of racism or sexism in the individuals. Um, which is not to say that there is no, you know, individual animus towards people of different groups. It's just that it is not the focus either in terms of the, like the main source of the problem or the main solution to the problem. Um, and at that, and then in that way, I think it rubs certain people both conservatives and some kinds of liberals, what I guess what you call classical liberals the wrong way, because it feels like it deprives the individual of agency or is paternalistic or et cetera. Lots of ways I think that that has been characterized. Would you say that sort of is, is similar to the concern that you're raising? Yeah, um, I, I, I'm not, I don't have much of a problem with that. Although, I mean, I was sort of rolling, I mean, classical liberal, I was just sort of rolling my eyes a little bit because I feel like that mm. term is just, you know, it's just like almost like woke itself is just invoked so often. I've, I've, I've just, I don't know that I really know what it means anymore. But um, I, one thing I, I, I mean wanted is to... a tribal signifier more than an actual okay. like yeah. um, significant position or something. Fair enough. Um, I wanted to add though that uh, um, identity politics also seems to be a, a pretty common thread mm, in the anti woke mm-hmm. community, and I think I'm thoroughly on board with um, a serious skepticism that identity politics is the way to go uh, when we're thinking about how to pursue social justice. Um, And what do you mean when you say identity politics? Yeah. So uh, it's um, something that I've thought about um, and uh, it's, uh, it can be defined, I suppose you think about it carefully in different ways, but essentially um, it is, I mean, I guess to be as neutral as I possibly can, it's activism on ba- on the basis of social identity groups, whether it's race, sex, gender, so on. But I tend mm-hmm. to see the way that it's played out and the way that it is um, defended is, it, to me, it really exhibits a tendency to um, <clears throat> engage in this kind of ranking of uh, oppression, um, kind of like a... Um, you know, in a, in accordance with, uh, mm-hmm. the oppression hierarchy of, for intersection. Yeah. I mean, is that, yeah, essentially. Um, so, you know, I just don't find that to be a very helpful approach. Mm. And I what think, do you think, uh, yeah. So I guess I, I'm curious how you, if you would contrast that with some folks, when they talk about identity politics, they mean something like groups with shared interests, like you say, race or, um, you know, I would argue that class can also be an identity and that you can have yeah, class sure. identity po- politics and that populism is a kind of class identity politics. Um, they would argue that, like, it is good when these groups come together and try to create, you know, coalitions for the sake of improving the quality of life. And, I, you know, they would point to examples, I think, like the civil rights period, where I would argue that you do see a lot of, you know, what, what we would today call identity politics, even being practiced by individuals who are today considered to be, you know, the more like acceptable end of the wing of civil rights 
era movement. Um, and I, I, the reason I bring this up is because I also, there's a critique that I sometimes see in anti-woke spaces, which is that modern wokeness is a separate thing from the civil rights struggle of the 60s and 70s and that the they, they were fine with the old version but not okay with the new version essentially and i'm curious how you how you feel about those uh yeah those i mean positions. i'm fine with all that i mean obviously you know we have civil rights from the 60s you know where you have title you know whatever the, the titles are i'm not a lawyer but um you know essentially the, the focus is on promoting civil rights for uh, African-Americans, uh, for women, and so on. And I mean, you know, I mean, there's no, uh, I don't see any point in trying to argue the idea that, um, you know, we were promoting justice on the basis of advancing rights that particular social groups did not previously have. Um and in that sense, I mean, if you want to call that identity politics, I mean, sure. Um, mm -hmm. My issue mainly is the way it plays out in terms of these sort of hierarchies of oppression or, sure. you know, essentially um, categorizing people into groups that are ranked by degrees of oppression. And I mean, I guess I'll really end up just sort of uh, invoking lots of anecdotal evidence to sort of illustrate how that plays out how out in terms of creating a culture of victimhood or resentment or what have you. But I do have, you know, and I, and I have, but I, but to the extent that those anecdotes illustrate that, that quote unquote problem, um, you know, I think it's a serious problem, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think if you picked up in the second book, the one on stoicism, um, you know, the crucial distinction is that there's a distinction between the living of your life and the circumstances of your life. Um, and it's the living of your life that you have control over. And it's the living of your life that actually is going to matter for how well you live your life. And it's not that, but, but, but it's not that the circumstances of your life don't matter. Um, it's really just with it, it's what matters with respect to what you control as a matter of virtue, as a matter, as a matter of, you know, a flourishing life and so on. Um, mm -hmm. And as a result, there's a lot of overlap. So, uh, you know, we're calling it three different things, wokeism, identity politics, critical social justice. In the book, I talk about it as critical social justice for the most part. Um, but one point that I really do try to emphasize at various points is the overlap between, say, a stoic approach to justice, which, as you were saying, um, kind of focuses on the individual um, and the individual cultivating character and virtue and so on, and critical social justice, which is kind of that systems level uh, analysis. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not an either or. The issue is simply that, you know, you can have a perfect world and you can have perfect institutions, but that's not going to be, I mean, it's at, at best a necessary condition of happiness or contentment. It's by no means sufficient because, you know, it's ultimately, you can still have people who have all sorts of hangups, anxiety disorders, so on and so forth, mm -hmm. even with the most perfect institutions. Whereas even with the most imperfect institutions, at least in the stoic perspective, you can still live a flourishing life on the basis of cultivating virtue. And so the point I, mm -hmm. you know, I'll sum this up. The point I want to really highlight is that, yes, I'm focused on the individual, the living of your life and virtue and so on. Um, but it's not to say that it's an either or, that there is an overlap 
between this so-called stoic approach and so-called identity politics, critical social justice, woke, whatever you want to call it. I mean, in other words, the system does matter. Yeah, I think a lot of that makes sense. And I want to, I want to put a pin in a second for the, for the stoicism stuff, because you and I can argue about um, how radically, you know, anti-free will we want to be in a second here. Um, and I want to touch on a few of the other things that I think you've, you've brought up here in the beginning that I think is valuable for understanding some of where we might overlap. Um, first of all, what you're sort of describing there in that kind of back and forth about system level concerns and things, I actually would point to uh, a fellow, a former guest, Elizabeth Barnes, who does disability crit literature. So in the disability studies world, there was this shift from the kind of behavioral individualism where the idea is a medical model where you cure the disabled individual so they can function normally in a society like ours, whereas the as you would sort of, you know, the disability crit, right, the critical social justice approach that comes along after that says, well, actually, what we should do is stop viewing the person as flawed, but instead reorient society so that individuals of all different levels of accessibility can, you know, interact positively in society. And I think to some extent, everybody was on board with at least the weak version of that where you, you know, don't needlessly have stairs where you could have a ramp or something like that. Um, but there was uh, a concern even within the disability community that like it went too far into thinking that literally the only cause of harm or suffering for disabled individuals is society not orienting itself properly to them. Um, and so Elizabeth and others argue that like, we should move a little, we swing the pendulum back a little bit towards the idea that like there's some amount of being disabled where you're going to suffer no matter what, no matter how well society is oriented. And, and in those situations, we need other solutions than critical social justice solutions. Um, I think that's kind of a version of what you're saying that I actually think would be located within the woke sphere, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, so, um, I don't have, I mean, I can add to it. I think you've made the point. Um, but uh, uh, I, I mean, I don't know if this, if this ever was clear, but, you know, I have a mm. brain tumor. Um, mm. And uh, I wrote an and article. You, that, you mentioned that you were a cancer survivor. I wasn't sure of the particular. Yeah. Comment. I mean, I, you know, the thing about a glioma, which is what I have, infiltrative astrocytoma is at least right now, it's not curable, but it's a low grade tumor that, you know, kind of has, well, at least we hope, a long life. Um, and, you know, with medical advances, who knows? But, um, you know, uh, I wrote an article for quite a couple of years ago, about, years about this. But anyway, um, the point ultimately is that, I mean, obviously I wouldn't want to have it, you know? Um, and, and so I do mm -hmm. consider it to be a quote unquote defect in the sense that it's, these are not healthy cells, um, that, you know, they had to be combat combated with chemo and radiation, although those weren't really bad for me, at least maybe that's just my stoic personality. But the issue is that, um, I have no problem calling it a defect. It doesn't affect my mm. mental health or my, you know, or anything like that. I mean, that's really all I would add. I think I agree with what you were saying, um, you know. And, and, you know, that would, to me, be the kind of an example of like a hidden, what we talk about is hidden disabilities, right, or non-obvious 
um, issues, which I think is something that, you know, woke um, sort of DEI accessibility kind of folks often will point to as being important, but they don't always necessarily, I think, do a great job of actually living up to that idea in terms of there's still a kind of assessment that's made of individuals based on their external features. Um, so, you know, to, to tie this into the hierarchy of oppression thing that you kind of mentioned there, um, it seems to me that there is, you know, if you accept intersectionality, right? If you accept this idea that like different parts of your identity can compound together and and might, you know, statistically be more likely to create worse outcomes for individuals that like, if you happen to be gay and also a part of a highly religious community, those two factors are going to create a, you know, a higher likelihood of bad outcomes, for example, right? Um, and if you assess all of those kind of intersections, you do get a kind of map of here's individuals who are most at risk for marginalization or something. Here's the kinds of marginalization that some individuals are more likely to experience. To me, all of that just seems like important empirical research. The problem comes in, it seems like, when that is used then as a pretext for what I consider to often be fairly retributive ways of dealing with individuals who are viewed as less, you know, marginalized or something like that. Rather than a roadmap for fixing society, yeah. it creates a sort of permission structure for attacking certain individuals, for dismissing certain the suffering of certain individuals in, in various ways like that. That, to me, is the sort of crux of the problem. Um, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm curious if you would sort of agree that, like, it is useful to know that, like, and, in, you know, a, a woman who's also an immigrant, an undocumented immigrant is at higher risk of sexual assault so that we as a society can reduce the risk of that harm. But that shouldn't be like a justification for, you know, being mean to people who don't fit those categories. So, yeah, um, first I was going to point out also, I, you know, every now and then I'll have a stutter, which is just the result that you know, my surgery was performed in the Broca area. So, you know, I don't know that I've, I mean, I'm more or less okay, but every now and then, you know, that's the speech area of the brain. And so, you know, that's another way that this kind of manifests, but I don't necessarily consider myself as, you know, I don't, it doesn't mm -hmm. affect my mental health, mental health. You know, there, there's a stutter right there. Um, but yeah, uh, I agree with what you're saying. And in fact, um, when I was, when I began uh, writing about this stuff in the Good Good Men Project a couple of years ago, I had written um, an article on white privilege, and I said, you know, um, it was uh, the title was the problem I have with white privilege. But I began by saying, you know, let's be clear that white privilege is real, um, and I went into some of the problems that I had with it. Some of it having to do with what what you're saying, um, and some issues that I would eventually develop in the book about the distinction between good privileges and bad privileges and so on. So, you know, in other words, the problem was just the lack of nuance, at least in the way that it's discussed. Mm -hmm. But with respect to the point you're making, um, or I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, with respect to the point that you're making, um, sorry, I had two thoughts at the same time and I was trying to figure no, out no which worries. one I wanted to go through first. But uh, the first is that in a second article, I, my, the way I conceptualize privilege is in terms of probabilities. In other words, you know, um, somebody who is, um, you know, I, I had been stopped by police at one point because I was walking in, in a neighborhood where there had been a robbery and I was wearing a hoodie. And I suspect that maybe they thought the cop thought I had a, 
had a suspicious look because I, you know, was wearing a hoodie. And so, you know, basically I just stopped. I complied. He asked me to look in my, my backpack. He found nothing. He went, you know, and, um, the issue was that one, I didn't really, I didn't feel any sense of apprehension because I knew I didn't do anything wrong. And I just felt like compliance would, would be, would get me out of the, you know, be fine. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and on average that's, that's right. And I think on average that's, you know, and I think that whether you're white or black, you can, you know, if you, in a situation like the one I was in, you can more or less hope or expect to get out of that. Okay. But on average, less so if you're a black person than if you're a white person. So, mm-hmm. and similarly mm-hmm. with what you're talking about in terms of being a sexually assaulted or whatever. So if you think about this in terms of like conditional probabilities, you know, I mean, the privilege is in the less, the less likely uh, outcome. And the fact that it, right. as a white person, you know, you get the point. Um, so I, I am on board with that. And, and that to me is a kind of, if you want to call it a system level observation, because it's based on population groups, right. And, and, mm-hmm. and the, um, and the relative, uh, averages. And if you did a T test, presumably you'd find a significance there. Um, and then the, the, just to reiterate, reiterate your last point, you know, I have a good friend for many years from high school who is, you know, reasonably progressive, you know, um, I mean, he's, uh, mm-hmm. he's spent uh, a lot of his career in philanthropy, um, does a lot of work on like, uh, criminal criminal justice reform, education reform, and so on as part of his own little shop. And recently he was just telling me he's thinking about getting out, trying to get a, diff, a career change. And part of it, the reason, among other reasons, is he says, I just don't want to feel like a shithead anymore. And he says that because it seems like in lots of conversations that come up, uh, you know, conference calls and so on, you'll just hear an undertone of, resentment against white privilege and being white and, and sort of, um, in, you know, mm-hmm. uh, interrupting someone's speak and trying to correct their speech. And he'll be sitting in a, he was sitting in a coffee shop one time and he texted me, he said, just heard some, some woman say on the phone that if we could just get rid of all the white males in the environmental activism, uh, world that, you know, we could actually make progress and so on. And so, you know, that, that's the kind of anecdotal evidence, I suppose, that I was referring to uh, a little earlier. But, I mean, it, it's very pervasive, in, at least in my view. Um, and, it you know, it just seems to me to be a natural offshoot of this sort of oppression hierarchy perspective. And it is the kind of punitive aspect of it that you've, that you've identified as one of the shortcomings of what otherwise is a perfectly legitimate focus on system level disparities. Yeah. So like, I agree with a lot of this. And I think, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not opposed to the anecdotal evidence here, because I do think there's enough of it to recognize that it is a pattern of behavior that doesn't show up in every liberal institution or every progressive institution. But, you know, I hear various stories from various institutions about like, the time when someone and, you know, I think of this as kind of being like trying to outwoke people, um, you know, which to me, I, you know, I, I, partly as a philosopher, but also partly because of the people I've ended up socializing with, I'm very familiar with the behavior of trying to put a finer point on whatever someone says, you know, the pleasure of like, I'm going to take your point and make it just a little bit sharper. And I think there's a similar pleasure that some folks experience from kind of doing that one upping on, on wokeness stuff, right? Taking it to whatever the next level feels like 
in these kinds of ways, whether or not it actually is particularly helpful in those moments. So I think there's just a basic like hedonistic element to what people are doing there. But I also, and, and to bring back our friend Foucault, um, I think that part of this is power and that just like the reality is these individuals, some of whom are genuinely marginalized, I would say, recognize that they are at a, a moment in culture where they can leverage some amount of social capital by making those kinds of claims and accusations and think that <clears throat> think that it's reasonable to do so in the situation for the sake of, you know, in, improving equity or promoting or something like that. Um, and I, you know, I think I think I think it's like, you you know, you and I think I think both are very like it's complicated. It depends. I, I think that's true of these kind of situations, too, where there are some times where pressing on those buttons is the right thing to do and other times where it seems harmful and, and counterproductive. Um, but I also do think that there are just some number of like petty tyrants out there in the world and, you know, wokeness gives them one kind of weapon to wield against people in their vicinity. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a time and place of er for everything, I suppose. Um, I would say that sitting in a coffee shop and, you know, saying that we're only going to make progress on environmental issues if we just get rid of all the white males at the top is right. one of those in which it's not um, a good use of social capital. Um, in the book, uh, you might not have gotten it to, but in chapter five, I talk about various attempts to quote unquote, cancel Lincoln. Um, mm. And, you know, uh, one of them involved a student group or group of students at the University of Wisconsin-Madison wanting to take down a statue of Lincoln and, you know, essentially invoking just things like, uh, you know, that he, um, you know, signed acts, uh, uh, you know, uh, granting land to Edu mm -hmm. educational student, you know, institutions that was native lands. And then, of course, just that the Emancipation Proclamation was about saving the Union rather than, you know, and and colonization issues and so on. And I think one comment by the student was that, you know, yeah, sure, he did a few things, but um, it's, you know, he did all these, uh, this, 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 and that, and other stuff that, you know, I, you know, I don't agree with. And um, all the other stuff, and of course, there's the famous statement in the debates with Lincoln, uh, with Douglas, in which he explicitly says, you know, he's not in favor of political social equality with blacks and so on. Of course, right. that itself is very t context dependent, and I don't, and it, in, it, in, in my view at least, and I make the argument in the book that it is in fact not a valid inference from that that quote to say that Lincoln was not in favor of social equality. Um, but similarly, there's in nuances to all the other stuff. And anyway, even if all that, even if you grant all that, you're still, you, you know, you can still use the uh, analogy of the baseball player, you know, where a good hitter hits 300, you know? So the fact that the fact that he got the emancipation proclamation through, and of course his whole leadership, uh, ability has got us through the civil war far outweighs any of the other flaws in my view. But anyway, I can go on and on about Lincoln. Uh, mm. To me, that's just another example of where, you know, it's just not leveraging that social capital the right way, quote unquote, that you're, that you were referring to. Um, but right. on the other hand, I mean, you can certainly, you know, and well, I don't want to monopolize because I can think of another example that'll take me five minutes. So. Well, I think the statue one is interestingly complicated because <clears throat> I'm strongly in favor of taking down a Robert E. Lee statue, no matter what anyone wants to say about right. the honorable Robert E. Lee. 
I'm yeah. in favor of taking down a Jefferson statue because I think on net we shouldn't like he's not the right person to be like if you if we buy for the sake of argument that we should have statues of anybody which i think is an yeah. open question as well and a stoic yeah. like yourself might actually not be in favor of that broadly speaking yeah you know but you know like let's let's say for the sake of argument that we need these statues um i do think that there is somewhere in the world a line between someone like jefferson and someone like lincoln and I think we have to try to draw that line. And I think Churchill's on the side closer to Jefferson, for example, but like it's complicated, um, you know, and, and like the question of how you assess the morality of past figures is a lengthy whole side debate. Um, but I do think I, I do think there are examples of like, you know, the like if we want to steal bot everybody in this, right, everybody wants a society that respects the right values and virtues and the people who hold them. And there's a debate about who actually holds those and concern that, you know, we will go too far in one direction or the other, essentially. And we're haggling over sliding too far in one direction or the other. Yeah. So um, let me go ahead. No, yeah. I just want to, I just want to pivot slightly here. There's another factor here that, that is important to me. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. And then we can talk about um, stoicism and why it's wrong for a second. Um, you know, you've mentioned a couple of things that I think I agree with here in terms of criticisms of wokeness, things like badly applied philosophy, overemphasis on systems level issues, harmful forms of identity politics. I think those are all things that people should be somewhat worried about. Um, it also seems to me that there has been a critique of, you know, like a lot of the critique of wokeness would fall into more of this moral panic around social justice that I see as going all the way back to the civil rights era, where you start to see, I think, the beginnings of the anti-social progress part of conservatism gaining more prominence. And then you have sort of the 90s with political correctness, which is one of the wings of the like shut down the government conservatism that was really about shutting down social progress by limiting the government's ability to enact social progress, I would argue. Um, and that like ultimately where we are now with things like January 6th, you know, queer theory, moral panics is just kind of the culmination of decades of really increased anxiety about social change that people think is you know, genuinely deeply immoral, that it's not just debates about jokes or curse words or things like that, that it's really, you know, the left has made substantial progress in 60 years and the right is really, really, really genuinely angry about that. I'm curious how you feel about how that fits into what you've experienced in the anti-woke spaces. Yeah, you know, I, unfortunately, I'm not sure how much I have to say about that. Um, the um, the reason not because I'm interested in either ignoring it or denying it, uh, I mean, that really kind of is the definition of a conservative is to really kind of identify more with the status quo than with a vision for getting beyond the status quo. But mainly because I just haven't done, and it's really just lack of time, um, mm -hmm. uh, but I just haven't really... Uh, I get, well, I want to say it carefully because I don't want to, you know, give off the wrong impression, but I haven't done much of a, an analysis in with respect to particular concerns. Like mm. we could do this line by line. In other words, um, like uh, I'm pro-choice and 
uh, people on the right who are pro-life. I mean, there's not a lot of middle ground in the abortion abortion debate. Um, but you know, the Roe the Roe decision you could view as a measure of progress for you know women's bodily autonomy and and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. And 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 I um, am on board with that. Um, and you could say that the right is basically resisting change. And I mean, it's true. That's exactly what it comes down to. They just, you know, I mean, they have, but, you know, I can sort of, I guess, since I've had a daughter maybe, but also just, you know, as a matter of principle, I can also appreciate to a certain extent the pro-life to, um, position. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you just take that issue, for instance, I mean, by definition, it is resisting change, but on the other hand, you know, as a matter of principle, to some extent, I can appreciate the pro-life position, but ultimately I come out on side on a pro-choice, but let me, let me, me well, just to, just to, yeah, but I, I think where I'm, you know, as I talk, I think I know where you're going. I mean, you think about Bill Buckley or William Buckley, you know, who is a classic conservative, very, very articulate guy, but I mean, ultimately just. I mean, you just can't take him seriously because, I mean, I believe he was opposed to civil rights uh, back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, I think, what is he, what do you write? God and man at Yale or something, you know, I mean, obviously yeah. very uh, religious conservative and so on. Um, the and, Baldwin debate, always worth watching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so in that sense, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's resisting genuine social progress. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you can appreciate Buckley's, you know, as a wordsmith, as a thinker in certain ways, but I mean, the thing is like, I mean, he missed like the generational issue in the sixties, right. which is racial, you know, you know, civil rights for marginalized groups. So, so yeah, I, I can agree with you to a certain extent, but it is issue by issue. Um, like in 94, well, I mean, the Republican, yeah. you know, I mean, ever since then, I, you know, at the time, I mean, but Newt Gingrich, I, I just view as pure poison. But I mean, I understand where, where the issue was coming from at the time, you know, uh, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm just trying to think of, you know, other um, issues, but like Reagan. Well, yeah, let me, the, let me jump in here for a second. Yeah, go ahead. Like go the, ahead. Re- the reason I asked about this was in particular, yeah. you mentioned in the, at, at the beginning that you, you know, when you started getting involved with the anti-woke stuff, it was a lot of the racial issues and CRT. Yeah. And I would guess that you would probably argue that, like, the way CRT has been handled has been a bit moral panicky, even if you might have criticism. By the anti-wokes. About... Yeah, right. Yeah. That Rufo yeah. and Lindsay and them have been promoting what is pretty classically a kind of um, moral panic playbook. But you also mentioned that you saw a shift from that to, like, the queer theory trans stuff and that seemed to kind of be part of the reason that you were more skeptical and i was wondering if that was because you felt like you were seeing a bit more of a like i see what you're jumping from panic to panic here yeah so let me let me elaborate on that um so i guess uh uh crt and trans so so um CRT first, I guess I'll just start with D'Angelo. I mean, D'Angelo, you know, she's not a spokesperson for CRT, but but she's clearly, you know, on board with CRT. Um, I'm very, very critical of D'Angelo for a lot of reasons, but um, also critical of like interest convergence, convergence theory by Bell. Um, you know, I just think it's it's a little too cynical, too fatalistic. Um, mm-hmm. I... I I mean, to some extent, I'm not, I don't have a problem with storytelling, but Delgado's, 
you know, emphasis on storytelling as a major part of sort of CRT critique. I mean, uh, it only goes so far and, and, and it, you know, and he's a Marxist anyway, and I'm not a Marxist, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, um, but at any or at least he's, you know, written positively about Marx. So I, I shouldn't cast dispersion or anything. Um, on the other hand, I do think CRT is right that, you know, racism, you don't just get rid of it. You know, it sticks around. It's hard to get rid of. There's, it's, um, I mean, I ultimately make a distinction between um, the, uh, 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 what did I call it? But the, the, the legacy of racism and mm-hmm. um, uh, whatever you call it, systemic racism. But anyway, I think a lot of what mm-hmm. we're talking about is the legacy of racism. But anyway, the point is CRT is right that racism is hard to get rid of. And mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, to some extent, uh, it is uh, hidden in many ways and um, that, you know, obviously it's institutional or systemic in the sense that we observe these these disparities. Uh, I think intersectionality has a point. I mean, I, I, I can uh, disagree with that in certain terms, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a useful framework. Um, and I think there's something to be said for lived experience and, and that sort of thing. I mean, I think that term mm-hmm. gets abused a lot and that's part of the critique I have of CRT. But anyway, the point is, you know, I can disagree with CRT on the extent to which racism is systemic, the way, the, the extent to which I believe they reify racism, uh, mm-hmm. systemic racism, um, the degree to which it's fatalistic and cynical and so on. But I mean, I can appreciate notion of intersectionality, lived experience. Um, I can uh, appreciate the, you know, storytelling. And I think in general, the general idea that racism just doesn't go away and that you really kind of have to keep the foot on the pedal, so to speak, is right. So the extent to, to the extent that you've got these sort of, if you want to call it a moral panic, that it's just a way to kind of, you know, make us all believe that uh, white people are, you know, these sort of evil mm-hmm. custodians of society. You know, I mean, we were talking earlier about how this sort of mindset can be abused. I, I mean, I definitely think you see that to some extent in the way that plays out. But I mean, that's not mm-hmm. the point of CRT. It's just not. It's not right. the point of CRT to demonize white people. That is just not the point. And I think that yeah. the anti-woke crowd has really latched onto this view that the whole point of CRT is to just demonize white people as a way of curing race, uh, racism. And so that's one. Mm. So then you get to the gender critical stuff. And that's something that I, I just, you know, I've been moving away from this. I've been busy with other things, so I haven't followed it as closely as I have with the race. Um, but really to address your point, I mean... I have issues, you know, about, you know, I, I, I'm skeptical of the extent to which you want a trans um, woman to compete in women's sports, uh, just, but I'm willing to admit that I don't know enough about the biology of hormones and so on. I mean, the, the, mm-hmm. the Leah, the Leah Thompson or whatever, Thomas, I guess, issue at Penn, my alma mater. I mean, that does strike me as like, you know, a little bit of an advantage. So, I mean, I'm willing to kind of, you know, follow that critique to some extent. I mean, I'm not a great fan of pronouns. I mean, I just don't think it really moves the needle. And I think it's a little bit of virtue signaling, but I mean, it's not a big issue to me. And so I guess that's, that, that provides a transition to like, like, 
Yeah, I mean, Colin Wright. Okay, I mean, he 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 lambastes pronoun use and whatever. And I'm not a big pronoun person, but do I think that pronouns are you know some kind of dire threat to society? No. Do I am I willing to believe that people are going to get fired because they don't use pronouns? No. Um, and am I willing to consider whether, in fact, um, it, never never mind that. The, the The big issue is that. I can appreciate, in fact, a tweet that I think I saw a few minutes before I came on here about somebody saying, this is what it's like to be a trans person, which is you post something that you think looks cute on social media and all of a sudden mm-hmm. all of the hate comes in, either in from trolls or email or whatever. And so I can appreciate the extent to which trans, that identity is still a marginalized identity and that some of the sort of wider community of anti-woke trolls, if you want to call it that, are really just, I mean, it's all about, you know, uh, you know, saying, I'm trying not to meander and and go on and on here. So I'm trying to, but, but the issue is I I can appreciate uh, the, the, the idea um, and I'd have to think about it, that some of it is just pure resistance to accepting mm-hmm. trans people uh, into the, I don't know what you call it, the human communities. The, mor- the moral community is the term the we use. The moral community. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, so with respect to race, um, I have lots of different criticisms, but it's not, I mean, CRT is not out to demonize white people. And I think anti woke yeah. get so- way out of hand with that. With respect to the trans, you know, I have. I can sort of appreciate some of the concerns about trans activism, but do I think that a lot of this is really just about, you know, resisting the welcoming of trans people? I think there is to, I think you can, I think you do see that sentiment in, in, in anti-woke troll communities. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's a couple of things I want to ask you about. And I know we're running a little short on time here. Yeah. One thing I wanted to get to, you mentioned your sort of critiques of D'Angelo and I think, you know, it's always interesting to me that like D'Angelo and Kendi are put together when they have, I would say pretty opposite kinds of approaches. Kendi is much more like the kind of systems level, you know, that we've been talking about. Whereas D'Angelo is this very individual focused, you as an individual have this fragility. You need to, you know, it is in a sense, a kind of virtue theory, not a very good one in my opinion, but it is an attempt to try to force people to like cultivate virtues of not being, you know, not having white fragility. Um, and it seems to me that like, aside from, I, I agree with the Kafka trap problem that people put forward that like, it does create a situation where you can have a loop in a conversation that's not helpful at all. It also just seems to me that like, it's bad because it doesn't focus on the systems level and like it ignores that central insight of critical race theory and these other kinds of approaches instead of choosing to do this weird psychoanalytic kind of thing. It's, and, and like, I think this is actually partly because it is a very neoliberal approach in the sense that like a lot of the stuff that I think the people who are critical of D'Angelo enjoy is, is what's going on in her wokeness that makes it worse, that it is focusing on individuals too much in this kind of way. Um, I'm curious if you would sort of agree that like that's, that maybe it makes it worse than the other kinds of things. Well, even if you I, think that I an individual do, approach is better. I do actually disagree because 
I think this D'Angelo is very explicit about systemic racism and that what we're really dealing with are systemic issues and that white fragility is really just a manifestation of whiteness. And in fact, I would say that some of the main critiques I, I, I make about D'Angelo is this sort of, uh, I guess, what would you say, the fallacy of composition or something? Um, yeah, you know, what you see something, or something like that. Yeah, I, I, I guess, you know, what you observe in one individual is true of the group uh, and the other way around, too, that, you know, she makes very generalization, you know, broad generalizations about white people in terms of whiteness and then sort of just, you know, fallacy of division just applies it to you as a white person. And so I think the issue is I think there is more overlap between Kendi and D'Angelo than, than you're letting on, but in the sense that for D'Angelo, it's very much a discourse-focused uh, analysis and about white moves of whiteness, so to speak, white fragility being a move of whiteness. Um, and I, I guess I, I, I would say it seems to me that she's engaged in a kind of Martin Bailey when she does this jump back and forth between the system and the individual that like, it seems to me that her solutions are all individual focused not systems level and while she may think that like the individual behavior is the emergence of a systems level problem she's you know she's attacking it from that that individual level and that's why you get this weird you know you have to confess your sins of whiteness and you have to like you know the guru guys did her recently and i think did a very good job of like pointing out the, like the religiosity of this kind of approach yeah. to wokeness yeah. that like, you know, whatever criticisms you have of Kendi, it isn't the same sort of, I think, you know, confess your deepest, darkest secret truths about your, your racism or something. Yeah. I just, you know, I mean, to even myself try to steal man to, uh, or steal woman, uh, D'Angelo. I mean, I think that her, her issue is really that it's really by continually, questioning our assumptions about whiteness and so on that we can actually ultimately contribute to the types of policies that someone like Kendi might white um, might advocate and so I mean yes the, the argument for me is that the effect is that it becomes a proselytization pro proselytization campaign a kind of religious thing um, and it manifests as this kind of original stin psychoanalytic type of stuff but I think that her her intent her 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 framework is very, very critical social justice, very explicit about that in her books, um, and that it's very much a systems level analysis. Um, but the thing is that we as individuals enact the systemic systemic disparities through our discourses and our behavior. And so I think that's her point. Yeah, I think I think we agree to some extent there, though I think I I, I more see the systems level stuff she references as cover rather than the focus to some extent. Um, but I know we're getting really short on time here, and I want to talk a little bit about your alternative in terms of yeah, stoic sure. approaches to social right. justice, because uh, I've I've gone around with uh, Massimo and other folks before about social justice and stoicism. And I, I think, you know, the question that I'm most interested in pressing you on at the end of your book, you make a claim, and I'm quoting here, that like, nothing or no one can take away your ability to choose virtue. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is a, this is a position that I've heard other people take before. This seems to me false. It seems to me that like there are actually a variety of ways that I could take away your ability to choose virtue. And I think you, you reference Aristotle there, but I think Aristotle also acknowledges that like 
whether or not you have the capacity to act virtuously comes down to various forms of luck. So I'm curious about, you know, how you how you feel like you can you can defend a sort of a claim that there is a kind of control over your ability to act virtuously no matter what. Yeah, I mean, so two things. One that really um, really revolves around uh, an explanation explication of what um, of the sort of the Stoic view uh, view on. Um, the uh, human self entails and what virtue and character development entails. But um, I guess, I mean, I'm, but seeing as how you bring up moral luck and I think feel you're kind of tying it into that. I'm just wondering how it ties into that before I, maybe I try to answer that. I mean, I'm happy to answer it, but I wonder yeah. if that, um, I mean, well, yeah. you know, well, it, it seems to me that yeah. like, it, it, it seems to me that whether or not you have virtue and I'm a virtue ethicist as well in varying ways, whether yeah. or not you actually have virtue is ultimately the result of luck. And that like, the Stoics seem to take a position where there's some parts of you that aren't the result of luck and that they're therefore can still be held morally responsible. And it seems like the approach is generally similar to other compatibilist approaches to free yeah. will, where you're sort of yeah. saying, it is you know, very if you are right, if you have the kinds of essentially, if you have the virtues, then you can be held morally responsible. Um, but it also seems to require you to claim that whether or not you have the virtues is something you can be held responsible for. And I just, I'm not sure how you can defend that claim. And, and that, that opens up a problem of moral luck, it seems to me. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I might have to probe you on what, cause you know, luck can mean, I don't know, it can mean different things to me, but the, uh, I mean, it really just stems from the stoic view of what human agency, what how the human self amounts to. And I mean, you know, it's, it's coming from a certain kind of metaphysic, a materialist metaphysic, um, you know, naturalistic view of the world in which we are, um, you know, creatures of nature, um, and mm -hmm. that the world is kind of a double Aztec monism, if you will. It's like the one, but it's there's a material base, and then there's this sort of underlying logos, a kind of intelligibility to the universe, which means that rationality is very central to the way they view our role in the world. Um, and it's not necessarily, I mean, logic is a big part of Stoicism, but it's not simply about, you know, being able to draw uh, inferences from premises, but, um, also about the ability to, um, form correct judgments about, uh, your beliefs about the world around you, you know, so no stoicism is very much about living in harmony with nature, um, which is essentially saying that, you know, cultivating the, the things that your, the endowments given to you by nature, central being, you know, um, reason. And mm -hmm. uh, reason is your faculty uh, for making judgments and ultimately for your ability to cultivate virtue. And so then the question is, what is virtue? And virtue, I think it's important to sort of locate that within the context of ancient Greek philosophy in which, at least in my view, virtue was very much about harmony and order. You know, you go into Plato's Republic and you think about his tripartite division of the soul and you got reason, spirit, um, or intellect, spirit, and the appetite, or whatever. They, they, you know, and wisdom is the perfection of in intellect, and courage the perfection of courage, and or of spirit. 
and temperance, the um, perfection of appetite. And then when all these are, are, you know, in order and well aligned, you have justice. And so, you know, then you kind of extend that to the macro level of the city state and so on and so forth. So it's really about order and harmony. And I, I find that to be a, a pretty compelling view of the basis of a well-lived life. Um, and I just think about, you know, all the challenges that anybody would face in life, including my my own. And I think at the end of the book, I don't know if you saw some of the things I went through in 2020. And the issue is, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't hold that stuff against me. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, it, it's sort of, you could see it as manifestations of chaos in the world, but really it's just like, I have reason. Um, I can understand my place in the world. I can understand the type of creature I am. Um, and, uh, from there, I can make my make decisions about how to pursue virtue. Now, you mentioned compatibilism, and it is very compatibilism. And so, in the sense, you know, what do we mean when we say to live in accordance with nature and 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 what our place is in nature? I mean, they have a very kind of deterministic view of the world in the sense that, you know, the logos is always operating, and there's, you know, I don't like the phrase, but there's a reason for everything. In other words, we can, in retrospect, understand why. Ha- things happened as they did, and in a sense, they happened. They they happened as they did, and they couldn't have happened otherwise. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. what happened. And so the issue is, what kinds of beliefs do you develop about that? And for me, it's about the response that you have to the challenges in your life, to the circumstances of your life. Um, and that's where this sort of you know, there's this analogy that Chrysippus comes up with. You know, the rolling cylinder. You put it at the top of a hill. You know, gravity's going to pull it down. That's the determinism. But it only goes down because it's a cylinder, you know? So it's in its innate character to roll down the hill. And that's, you know, again, that's just a way of illustrating the compatibilism of Stoicism. Yeah. And so so to me, that's just, you know, that's just reason operating as it should. Right. And I, I, I can agree with all of that, except it also seems to me that on a materialist, naturalist worldview, one where we don't believe in a eternal soul or something like that, everything that goes into, you know, your ability to be a rational being, whether it's nature, nurture, or the combination thereof, it's all going to be stuff that's beyond your control. And that's what I mean by luck is beyond your oh, control right. in the sense that we yeah. can hold you responsible for it. You know, how, you yep. have to be lucky sure. enough to be taught all of the things you have to be lucky enough to have the kind of mental capacities to do, to understand all of those kinds of things. Right. Aristotle says you could be born a natural slave and then you wouldn't have any of those capacities or something. Right. So, you know, it, it, it might be that like, we want to value people, you know, the ability to be rational and promote it as much as we can, but I'm not clear on how that actually, uh, you know, sort of escapes from the problem of, of luck in this kind of way of constitutive luck, essentially, Um, And I I do think that like there's an important difference between thinking that it does in a way that allows us to hold people responsible versus acknowledging that it doesn't and seeing what follows from that. Yeah. So when you I mean, um, you know, when when you think so, the the Stoics is again, it's like multiple threads here. But um, Mm -hmm. so in terms of holding responsible, I mean, typically when I hear that, I think about it in just in terms of like a criminal justice type. This is, you know, can somebody be held accountable for for murdering someone? But I'm thinking about some, you know, personal responsibility in terms of being able to be responsible for your well-being. Um, and if I think about it in that sense, I mean, 
uh, I still think it very much applies in the sense that, I mean, yes, we're all born in different circumstances. And by the way, I would argue that we can't have been born in different circumstances. In other words, I can only have been born to the parents that I have in the particular year that I was born and then whatever, because that's my DNA. Like if I had different, different DNA, I'd be somebody else. In other words, like that is who I am. And, and I mean, there's luck in the sense, at least the way I'm thinking about it, in that, you know, they copulated in at one particular night and one particular sperm cell happened to survive. And so I get the particular combination of DNA that I get and that sort of thing. And then of course, mm -hmm. so, you know, I mean, there's luck in the sense that, you know, I didn't choose my circumstances and I grew up um, with all sorts of challenges of my own and so on. Um, but I mean, it couldn't have been any other way. I mean, that's just the way mm -hmm. it happened and it couldn't have been other way. And so then the question for me is, you know, yeah, that's out of my control. I mean, call it luck, whatever. But the issue is what I do have is my ability to choose um, based on the, you know, by, by reason, I, you know, the judgments that I make and what I'm aspiring to do is do that in, in, in accord with virtue. So, I mean, to me, I don't see a conflict because I, I can, I can absolutely acknowledge that, you know, as I was saying early on, that there's the circumstances of your life that you don't have any control of, but that doesn't mean that you can't choose from that standpoint. Um, yeah. So I guess I would, I would, you know, be skeptical of both the words you and choose in that sentence. But I think the part that I agree with you on is that if you're lucky enough to have the capacity to understand moral principles and yeah. the like mental capacity I mean, to act so, on those principles, then you should. Yeah. And, and that's good. And the Stoics uh, are very uh, clear that the so-called Stoic sage, the person of per perfect virtue is rare as a phoenix. And in fact, most of us are not virtuous and are not. And so, I mean, you could say that, well, if that's the case, what's the point? Well, the issue is you're trying to be better. You know, you're trying to strive toward, towards virtue. And the point is that it is our, it is in our capacity, but the Stoics are very clear in recognizing those types of um, constraints. I mean, there, there's, yeah. there's no, yeah. I, I would say it's rare because it requires so much luck. Um, let me, yeah. you know, we're, we're just about out of time here. And sure. I did want to, since you've been sort of critical of my work in various points, and I've been sort of harassing you about your work here and give you a chance if there were sort of particular criticisms of my either hard luck kind of view or my application of it to the kind of culture war, social justice analysis that you wanted to uh, share. I'd certainly be happy to, to include that in the main show before we head on over to, to some bonus content. Um, well, <clears throat> I think it really require a little fleshing out of what we mean by, by luck. Um, you know, I, I don't know, I, I, I don't know if this would be straw manning. I don't know if what, if the issue comes down to like everything is luck. And so, you know, all is lost. I'm not sure that that's what you're saying, especially since you say that, um, you know, you are virtue ethicist. Um, and if that is the view, then yes, I would sort of categorically reject that. Um, and I think a similar issue that comes up here, and I think I've seen this uh, right uh, emerge in some of your articles, which is the idea of meritocracy. And I see people on the left, you know, critiquing merit meritocracy often. And to me, it, it often seems like it really kind of, I guess it, it gets to be a little irksome because it really depends on what you mean. To me, a meritocracy is the idea that, you know, if you have a, 
you can't teach at a university without the right credentials. Whether you get a position or not, you know, obviously that's going to depend on a lot of factors, you know. Um, you know, as an economist, you if you have the right ec mm -hmm. education, you know, you're going to get uh, this sort of wage, whatever. But there's all sorts of the things that could factor in. And that's where sort of CRT becomes relevant because it focuses on some systematic factors that might impede that. But the issue is, like, in general, if you do a jo good job at your work, you're probably going to get a raise or get a promotion. And that's really all I ever mean by by, merit by meritocracy and that there is sort of agency in that sense. But there's no real sense. There's no at least for me, at least, there's no uh, desire to, to not deny the contingencies of life, uh, what you might call luck or whatever, and that those sorts of th contingencies impose all sorts of constraints on our life. I mean, that, that that's just a fact mm -hmm. of life. But I think it's also a fact of life that we can choose to deal with those constraints as best we can. And so that's really the main, the main point that I would make. Um, but in general, like, I think we both recognize complexity. Uh, I'm probably, you know, obviously I think I lean a little bit more towards anti-woke, although with, uh, you know, the James Lindsay's of the world, I, I, I just, you know, it's just, it's getting way out of hand, but you lean more towards the woke and so on. Um, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to have those sort of differences at the level, but hopefully it's going to be at the level of nuance and not at the level of generality. Cause I think, you know, we both mm -hmm. agree that CRT does, does not try to demonize white people, uh, it recognizes mm -hmm. that racism is hard to get past. You know, trans activism is really ultimately about welcoming them, welcoming them into the moral community. So, you know, those things we're going to agree on. Great. So I think maybe let's, let's save the meritocracy stuff. We'll do that a little bit in the VIP discussion, okay. but let's, um, and I had, I need to torture you here, but I always do try to end yeah. first with, you know, if you could perhaps briefly uh, list a resource or two that you feel like would be helpful if folks wanted to understand, you know, things that you've found valuable in your journey on these particular issues, what would you recommend? Oh, I thought you were going to say my, I mean, there's my website, there's jonathandavidchurch.com. Oh, I'll, I'll um, let you, I'll let you plug your own stuff as well yeah, at the end. I, I thought, yeah, that's things. just what, but I mean, that's really the only thing I'll plug is uh, that, I mean, it has everything there. Um, but in terms of resources, um yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I have anything that particular to point out it's just because there's so much. Um, you know, mm -hmm. there's this third book that Kai and I, Kai Widening and I are working on right now. Mm -hmm. And um, I have a feeling he's going to streamline it a lot. But um, <laughs> there's a chapter that I have, which I, which I think, which summarizes what I view as five important philosophers for understanding critical social justice. And they are mm -hmm. Descartes, Heidegger. Wittgenstein, Derrida, and Foucault. It's an but, interesting list. Yeah, I mean, just you know, I try to work it all out, but um, I don't know that I can work all that out in about thirty seconds here. Um, yeah, no so, worries. I mean, that's the best I can. We'll, do, uh, we'll really, have you back on when that so book comes broad. out. I've had it's, you know, uh, chat with Kai as well. So um, yeah, I remember. I, I listened. <laughs> that was a good one. All right. Well, unfortunately, that means it's now time for me to torture you. This yeah, no is. Problem. Enlightening Round 2, Trolley Boogaloo Edition. Why don't you just tell me the right answer? Well, that's what's so great about the trolley problem is that there is no right answer. Uh. Now, as a Stoic, I assume this won't actually harm you at all because you'll just be equanimous about all of it. But uh, 
for the sake of folks at home, I'm going to give you a list of trolley problems. Everybody's familiar with the classic trolley problem. The question here is going to be, morally speaking, should you pull the lever in this particular scenario? Not would you psychologically, but should you morally, uh, assuming innocent strangers unless otherwise stated. Ready to roll? Yes. I mean, I'll just right. say beforehand that my answer really is it depends to everyone, but I will, I will, uh, uh, yep. you know, what, what is it? Con concede and, and say yes or no. Great. Great. Except for the sake of suffering. So first, of course, the classic problem, saving five by killing one. Um, well, well, I, no, <laughs> no. All right. Um, would you, uh, save five by shoving the person onto the tracks who's responsible for putting them in danger? No. Okay. Uh, should you, um, save yourself by killing one? Yeah, I mean, this really depends on what the killing is about, but I'll say no. Okay. Uh, should you save yourself by letting another person die? Yeah, again, it depends, but I'll say no. Okay. Interesting. So, what about this? Would you, or sorry, should you, <laughs> keep doing that, should you save your favorite artist's body of work by killing the artist? No. What if the artist is begging you to save the art instead of themselves? Yes. Okay. Uh, should you save the only existing sentient AI by killing one human? The what? The, the sentient, sentient AI? Yeah, conscious conscious AI. Oh, I see. Would I save the... What's the yeah, question should you, again? Should you save the AI over one human? No. Okay. Um, what if it turned out that you were the sentient AI? No. Okay. What about saving a random non-human animal by killing one human? Mm, no. Okay. What about saving your favorite non-human animal by killing one human? No. Same question to me. Okay. And finally... What about saving an entire ecosystem by killing one human? Saving an entire mm -hmm. ecosystem? No. All right. You survived. How do you feel? Oh, I'm fine. I mean, it's all, it all depends, but yeah, I'll just say sure. yes or no. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, all right. Well, we are way over time. Um, Jonathan, do you want to let folks know where they can find you one more time in terms of your website, Twitter, all those sorts of things? Yeah, I mean, you can find everything on the website. It's www.jonathandavidchurch.com. All right. Enough. Fair enough. And definitely check him out on Twitter and come, you know, join us on Patreon and hang out and we'll chat a little bit more about meritocracy and stuff. Otherwise, you know, we'll see you next time. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Our newest monthly voidlings, T, Nina Davies, Felicia Entwistle, and Jordan McCoy. And as always, I'd like to thank our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Jay Aldenwalt, Serious Inquiries Only, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, That Bastard Neil Polzin, 
Jesse Urbanowitz, and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space, with the new co-host, Callie Wright, of the Queer Splaining podcast. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons's Filmed Live Musicals podcast, which recently celebrated its 50th episode. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter your true level of fragility, you are the void and the void is you. 